Yeah, and that's what, you know, wisdom is, is sort of does take on a life of its own in a couple of places in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not an abstract concept. It's something very tangible and very concrete. And I think that speaks to the, the key importance of wisdom as a concept in the Old Testament as a whole, which is sometimes overlooked by Christians, I think. You know, we think other, like law is a central concept. Well, it, it's very important, obviously. I mean, prophets are important. Kings are important. But wisdom is something that really pervades the Bible as a whole, even in the stories. Like the Adam and Eve story is considered by many people to be a wisdom story. The, jo the Joseph story is a wisdom story. Other places like that. So, yeah, w wisdom is, is key, and wisdom is personified as a woman. And the closest you come to in you know the New Testament is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is, um, is, you know... That, that has that intimacy with God that wisdom has in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 8. Your great name The singing majesty We praise you King Singing glory To our blessing Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm glad you're here. A few quick announcements, and then we will jump right into this bad boy. If you are at all interested in diving deeper into contemplation and some of the work of the episodes from Alexander Shia and the heart and mind journey for spiritual transformation and a different kind of take on the Gospels, I would encourage you to go to the website. I am eventually, I promise, going to make sure, I, by now, by now, there should be a button where you can log up or you can sign up and I will put you on the mailing list for that so that we can all coordinate appropriately. I will do my best to make sure that we meet at least monthly somehow. Uh, to talk about it, but it will require some work on your part. You're going to have to do some reading. You're going to have to do some prayer. You're going to have to do some soul searching. And hopefully, hopefully, over the course of these conversations, there will be growth in both you and in me, spiritually and contemplatively. And I, I believe it'll be beautiful. Click that button and do that. If you have not yet, jump on board with supporting the show at Patreon. I love every single one of you. You have no idea how much your support goes to continue to make this show be what it is. Each month the show continues to grow, and with that, a little bit of patron support grows as well, and you know all, everything else that goes with that, but the growth is explosive, and, and I appreciate all of you. You literally make this happen, so if you haven't yet, do that. Uh, I have a few things planned differently for this year. I want to try to be a little more converse, conversational with all of you uh, in less of a text-based text format, so... Uh, do that. Go to patreon.com slash can I say this at church, uh, or you can click the support the show button at the website. You saw when you downloaded this thing already that I am talking with Pete Enns. And so Pete Enns, uh, he is the Abram Clemens Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University. You'll probably know him uh, from another podcast called The Bible for Normal People. He's authored some fantastic books. He's very smart. And most importantly, he is sarcastic and likes puns, and so he is near and dear to my heart. And I will not belabor this anymore. I will let's get into this. Let's let's roll the tape on a conversation on how the Bible actually works with Pete Ince. <laughs> 
Pete ends. Actually, I'll say Dr. Pete ends, but that's the last time I'm going to say doctor. Yeah, just my wife and kids have to say that. That's all. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time this afternoon to come on the podcast. At the beginning, I had a list of like 15 or 20 people, and you were on the list. And so almost two years later, I'm glad to finally welcome you to the show. <laughs> yeah, great. It's good to be here. I wanted to start with just a quick, you know, rule of thumb. So Jared Bias was one of my very first interviews, although it was not one of the very first ones that was released. And the fact that you and Jared run a, you know, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet, I'm curious if now that since I've had you both on, if I am now also a God-ordained podcast on the internet. Well, that's not up to us. That's up to God, right? <laughs> so we, we can't really give you that. Oh, man. No, I mean, I, I'd like to, but <laughs> that would be really arrogant on my part. <laughs> would it? <laughs> Even more arrogant than saying the only God-ordained podcast. <laughs> you have no idea, Seth, how many people, I mean, I, it's not like thousands of people, but how many people like email me and they say things like, you know, we really like the content, but do you really think you're the only God-ordained podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're I'm missing the point. That anymore because it's like obviously we don't think. That. Do you say yeah? You should just say yes. Like of of course I do. You just say yes. <laughs> yeah. Just just say of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Right, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to then finally count myself amongst the ranks because while you were talking, I prayed about it, and I feel like I also, as well, have become. Good. Either way, that's neither here nor there. So I always like to start. If you feel a calling for that, you're good. The call has been, the, yeah, absolutely. So I like to start uh, each episode, although you're fairly large enough that I feel like most people are familiar with you, but there will be that one person listening in New Zealand that's not. And so can you just take two or three minutes and give me a crash course on who Pete Enns is and why he is what he is. Yeah, well, wow. Um, I was born, but no, I, uh, <laughs> okay, so here, here's the thing. I am a Bible professor. I teach in the theology department at Eastern University, which is outside of Pennsylvania. And I also went to seminary. I taught in the same seminary um, for about 14 years. And, you know, I, I blog and I write some books and, and my main interest is just like making sense of this ancient text for us today. And that sounds really cheesy, but that's a hard thing to do because there's a big gulf <laughs> in between. And you want to take the, the text seriously in its moment, but also say, well, what does this have to do with us? So I, I'm really interested in a lot of things. And I teach courses pretty much that run the whole spectrum of things you could teach on the Bible at the college level. And um, let's see what else. I don't know. I have a wife. I have three adult children and animals. <laughs> and animals. Assuming that no one at your university is listening, what is your least favorite course to teach? You know, I don't want to sound, I, I like them all. Mm -hmm. I really do. I mean, I, I teach intro courses to students who are coming in. Many of them have very little Bible background. So it's a challenge to sort of sell it to them, so to speak. Like you can't assume they're interested. You have to sort of show them why this might be of value to them. And all the way up to the other end where I have a senior seminar that I usually teach where we focus on one book and it alternates between Genesis and Romans year to year. Huh. And that's seniors only. So, and everything in between, I teach hermeneutics, Torah, uh, the historical books, wisdom and poetry. Um, I teach a science and faith class. Uh, 
science and the Bible really more than science and faith. But uh, and I like them all. I just each one's a challenge, and uh, I just I really love teaching. Why Genesis and Romans, like of the sixty-six and at least our canon? Why those two? Did they just randomly come out of the hat, or there's a method to that madness? Well, see, this I inherited this when I when I came to Eastern in two thousand twelve, and I think the reason is because those are books that you can really land on every possible important issue. You know, with like Genesis, you're dealing with literary structure, theology, mythology, legend. You know, this whole historical question comes up. And with Romans, you're dealing with, you know, a a core person, a writer of the New Testament, Paul. And you get into currents of scholarship like the new perspective on Paul, which is a very different way of reading Romans than a more, let's say, traditional way, at least for Protestants. But so, yeah, it's sort of like these are places you can get into, like, very important issues for people who are Bible majors. And so that's why I sort of kept it as that. And I just, I think it's fun, you know, I mean, yeah. Rome is often misunderstood as is Genesis. So might as well go for those. <laughs> well, I, I'd argue pretty much every book in the Bible is often misunderstood. Um, and, and probably by me, at least every, every third or fourth day. That's what I hear. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You have a book, um, well, you have the, your newest book, uh, on how the Bible actually works. And then I like your subtitle, and so I usually don't say these because I can't remember them, but I brought yours with me, in okay. which I, Pete, explain how ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news. And so two questions on that. I've never known a publisher that would allow that much text to be on the cover. And what the heck does that mean? Yeah, well, it, first of all, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, okay? It's <laughs> I don't really mean that, but it's just, it's my way of just sort of talking about things. And, uh, but again, even there, I've, I've had people see previews of the title and say, he's got to be kidding. Is this the Babylon Bee that I'm reading? No one, <laughs> how dare he think? Well, well, to be fair, you've got the yellowish color. Right. That's true. <laughs> it's yellow and black and white. Anyway. But yeah, so I mean, how the Bible actually works and, you know, the word actually is, is in italics and. You know, I don't really think I know how the Bible in total actually works, but this book takes a stab at uh, things that don't normally come into the picture when people talk about the nature of the Bible. And mm -hmm. in the subtitle, I have these words, it's ancient, ambiguous, and diverse, which are actually wonderful things because those are the kinds of things that make the Bible, let's say, flexible. And I, I don't like to use the word applicable, but that's not a bad word here. You know, it's usable, applicable, and flexible, which is one reason why I think it sort of keeps hanging around and people keep reading it in very different ways and getting different things out of it. It's The Bible seems to me set up, as it were, to do that kind of thing. So, and it gives us wisdom rather than answers because, you know, it's not just sort of this collection of propositions and if you do them all or believe them all everything's fine it's it's a book that is diverse it's ambiguous and it's ancient and it therefore leads us towards trying to gain wisdom rather than thinking of the bible as sort of a field guide for the christian faith or something like that. right you talk in the book on wisdom quite a bit and you make the discussion the distinction of the searching for wisdom over answers Mm -hmm. And so when you say that, what I hear is the answers constantly change. 
at least for me. Maybe I'm overreading that. Um, is that what you mean by that with wisdom? Like the answers for next year, you know, and all of my kids are a year older and all of my problems change, that the answer is different or the way that I interpret is different? What is actually the distinction there? Well, I think that the, I think the Christian faith and the Bible behind it, it, it you know, our circumstances change and we see things differently and things that I believed very strongly that were true, let's say 20 years ago, that I might not, or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, that I don't think is correct any longer, I was on the path to seeking wisdom. And my, my views have changed and, or my practices have changed. So that's, that's really what I mean. It's, you know, I'm not suggesting, for example, that the Bible doesn't say anything that we might consider to be like an answer. But every answer still has the follow-up kind of question. Okay, well, so what? What do I do? What difference does this make? And at that point, you're immediately in wisdom territory because that can look different for different people and look different for the same person, as you said, at different times in their lives under different circumstances. Yeah. Which is beautiful, exactly what the Bible models. The Bible models different writers at different times communing with God. I would, I even like using the word imagining God in different ways, depending on who they are and when they are and what their pressing questions are. spoke with a guest, uh, I don't even remember exactly who it was or when it was, but they had said something about, you know, the Hebrew text and the way that that language was, was written and the Aramaic words as well were meant, uh, were, were limited enough that each word had different meanings depending on your context and the context of who they were written to, and they were meant to be wrestled with and chewed on, and they all had multiple facets. I think that's true, yeah, yeah, very much so, and and even just the, the factor of the passage of time, when you have Hebrew texts that are being read, let's say, hundreds of years later by, by Jews at a later time, even before the time of Christ, you know, some words, like, they'd start meaning different things. You like know, like what? the classic example of, of, like, fool in English. You know, fool meant something, you know, in Shakespeare, it means something different today. But... Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not always clear what something meant back then originally, but later readers don't care. You know, it isn't like I have to go back and do my homework. It's more like, you know, words take on different meanings that evolve. I mean, there, there are numerous examples. I'm trying to think about off the top of my head here, but, but language evolves, right? So if you have something written, let's say, during the period of, I don't know, the monarchy, let's say the 7th century you know, by some, like, whoever's writing at that point. And, but you have Jews reading this in, let's say, 200 BCE, you know, 400 years later, where Hebrew is no longer the, the major language, but they've passed through Aramaic, and now Greek is becoming important. So, you know, the language of the Bible itself forces readers to appropriate these things differently for their time. And that's exactly what happens. 
so when I do that, well, firstly, I don't necessarily believe in inerrancy the way that most people talk about it. Uh, although I feel like that conversation is quickly changing as my generation gets older and more vocal. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just the circles that I run in. But when I'm reading scripture that way, how do I measure uh, with uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How do I measure with conviction that what I'm reading the text to say is a good way to read it, and that I'm not just um, not just retconning in scripture? Because I, I, you know, the way that people would do for you know slavery, or the way that people would do to keep women in a place of subservience, or the way that people would do for other issues. How do we make sure when we're treating language, I guess loosely is the best way to say it for me, that that we're not just retconning in what we need it to say. Right. I mean, that's a surprisingly complex question. And the fact that it needs to be asked doesn't mean that now language has to be very simple, right? In other words, we do have this interpretive problem and there's no question about it. And how do you know? Well, you, you don't really know mechanically all the time, but it may take time to sort of filter these things through a community and to see, like to be in conversation with this is the tall order, but as much of the history of your tradition or of the Christian faith as you can be. Um, and I, I do think that, for example, I, I want to have a starting point in trying to understand what ancient authors were trying to do. But in the same sense, I don't know if that really can limit us because we have the Bible itself that doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, it, it takes, it, it appeals to earlier stories and earlier texts, and it goes in very different directions, directions that you might not always expect. Well, to drill down language, uh, and you used the word fool earlier, and you were talking about it in your book about, you know, contradictions. There's a, I forget which part of Proverbs, but basically, don't answer the fool, because that's, that's just a bad decision. But then right after it, answer the fool. Or yeah. he's going to, you know, boast that he's obviously, you know, don't answer Donald Trump or answer Donald Trump. But either way, I'm screwed. It doesn't matter which way I go. And so when we're talking about m words changing meaning, what does fool actually mean there? In, in what does it actually mean? You mean historically in the context. Fool is like a catch-all term in the book of Proverbs to and it describes people who are slanderers, who are lazy, who... Um, you know, don't look out for the well-being of the other. It's just many, many things that involve a fool. And we might think of that as basically someone who is not righteous. Hmm. And, and righteousness means how you are towards other people, really. This isn't like pious theology in Proverbs. It's actions towards other human beings. And that's really what a fool is there. It's, it's not somebody who's like, you're such a fool. Like, you're an idiot. Or, you know, you don't see the obvious thing in front of you. A fool is a little bit more of a treacherous category in, in Proverbs. And, and you're warned, don't be a fool, but be wise. Okay, great. So let's go to what you're citing before, 20, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Don't answer a fool, answer a fool. Well, which do you do? Because I don't want to be foolish. I want to be wise. <laughs> well, what do you do? You, you know what to do if you have wisdom. That's the circle here in, in Proverbs. It's like, it's a book that's meant to help you along the path of wisdom, but not just by delivering these nuggets of truth, but by forcing you to enter into it and to experiment 
and to think like sometimes you have to really sit down and think should i say something right now or should i not say something right so it's about more than reading the book it's about reading the situation that you're in yeah and that's what wisdom is about and i think the bible really not just proverbs but i think the bible forces us into sort of a situation like that where we have to think and do our best you know it's just so not set up as that rule book that sometimes people make it out to be and proverbs 20 um uh, 26 4 and 5 yes yeah, 26 4 and 5 putting them next to each other like that is a glaring example of i think not just proverbs but how the bible as a whole seems to be functioning yeah well i mean the bible as a whole has so many contradictions do you think that do you think that humanity as a as a as a creature i guess is the best word uh requires a rule book because it seems like we always try to turn things into that it doesn't really matter what the dogma is and it doesn't even matter that it's in a religious context but so often people look for the order of things to process in yes i think that's true whether it's just endemic to humanity i would i would probably say yeah (laughs) we keep coming across the history of humanity um and that's why it's interesting that the Bible is such a long, winding, complex collection of narratives and different genres that go in and out over spanning, you know, roughly a millennium, right? Roughly a millennium. And um, all these genres and all these uh, potential differing circumstances that, you know, it's the Bible is really set up not to be taken as a rule book. That, that's really the point. Even if you can say, I can point to some rules, that's great. Like, okay, how about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Okay. I, that's a rule. What do I do though? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the wisdom part comes in. Like how do you actually enact that? And that's where people will have different opinions. And you know, to me, that's part of the beauty of the Bible that, makes it really worth reading because we have to own this stuff for ourselves and not just check off some boxes. You've written basically two books in this book, I would argue. So there's the the text itself, and then there's the footnotes at the bottom of many of the pages, okay. which are almost an entirely different book unto themselves. I, I literally flipped through and just read those, and, and I like them a lot. But I'm curious, you give so many footnotes about your kids and about other things, and basically saying, I'm using this word this way, I'm aware that it's wrong, but for the purposes that we're using this in, this makes the most sense to the people that live right now. But you don't give me a footnote about you know, Joshua 10 and Judges 4 and 19, where you know, there's tent poles and dismemberment. And so you, you talk about all that like right around the same chapter as you know, making sure that we don't screw our kids up, which is a big goal of mine with three kids under 10, not to screw them up. And they ask really hard and tough questions. But then you don't give any disclaimers about the parts of the Bible that I should maybe avoid for the tent poles, the dismemberment. Um, yeah. Which one of those was more fun to write, the book itself or the, or the footnotes? Well, they both were. I mean, the footnotes were just places where I could sort of riff on things that I think are important or a chance for an occasional snarky comment. <laughs> yeah. like, but you know, I, I try to, as, as people can tell from the Bible tells me so and the sin of certainty and now this book, that I, I really don't want to use footnotes for a lot of content. Mm-hmm. 
because it's just distracting. A, f- a few places I do because I mention Isaiah and like the exile, and I say, listen, you know, most scholars think that Isaiah is probably a compilation of a long tradition that maybe three people put together or something like that. And I just want people to sort of know that because a lot of my readers are very curious about things like that. You know, they, they want to understand something with the scholarship, but I, it's, I don't footnotes with citations of books and things like that. I may do that once, but for me, the footnotes are a place just to say sort of relevant, but semi fun things to uh, that, that might help with some of the concepts in the book itself. I think you did only do it once. You're talking about, I think, homosexuality, and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. Please see this book, this book, or this book. End of footnote. Right. Although I will right. say my favorite footnote was about Asherah and Yahweh's as possible archaeological evidence for them being wife. And I think you just said, here's another free piece of trivia for you. There you go. Just yes. take it. Here you are. <laughs> you brought up the term exile, and you deal with exile in a way in this book that I'm not really familiar with. You deal with exile as a term and like exile is a, is a is a form of of death you know that we're exiled from eden exiled into babylon and that obedience in turn is what brings you out of exile which i've never really connected those two together before mm-hmm. can you break that apart just a bit for those that have not read the book sure yeah you know there's this thing called the babylonian exile which happened it began in 586 BCE and it lasted till 539 BCE. I'm already boring all your listeners by saying that. I doubt it. <laughs> so that, that's a very, very pivotal, I, I would say that is the pivotal moment in Israel's history as far as the Bible's concerned. Because, you know, I'm, I'm collapsing a lot here, but it's during the exilic period that the, the Israelites, who would soon come to be called Judahites, because that's the southern nation that actually survived, that they, um, you know, they, they were writing their story within the context of the pressure of exile and the sense of God abandonment in exile. And that's when the ancient stories started coming together and being edited together and grouped together in a certain way, and new stories were being written. And after the exile, stories were being written for even like two, three hundred years at least after the exile was over. And the thing about exile is that it was so traumatic because it was a sense of God's abandonment. And you see how pivotal that exilic and post-exilic perspective is on much of the Bible. So in other words, you know, you have stories of David and Abraham and Adam and Moses and Joshua and whatnot, but, and those traditions are very old. I mean, most, most every biblical scholar acknowledges that some of these things are pre-monarchic. They're very, very old traditions. But the form of the Bible in which we have it, you know, they weren't written five minutes after Joshua or five minutes after Moses. These books are the product of post-exilic reflection on an ancient tradition. They were retelling their story in the context of this period of suffering and what came out of it and what they learned from it, quite frankly. And I think that's a very important concept. And and so you see exile woven in to the Bible in various points. And one of those points is the Adam and Eve story, where, you know, they're, they're exiled from the garden for disobedience. And that parallels very nicely how Israel is exiled from the promised land because of disobedience. It's like the Adam and Eve story is really a preview of communion fractions. 
And you have this, this hinting going on, like in Deuteronomy, about if you do this, you know, one day I'm just going to, like, throw you out of the land I haven't even put you in yet. Right? They haven't gotten to the land yet. They're already talking about leaving because Deuteronomy is a later perspective. It's, it's, it's near the exile and probably during and maybe even a little bit after the exile, as far as we know. And so death, like the, the, um, the Adam story, death and exile are the same thing, in a sense. Because, you know, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, on the day they eat of it, they're driven out of the garden. Because to be exiled is to be in the place of death. And Ezekiel says that too, you know, the, what is it, 37, the, the valley of the dry bones. You know, I saw this vision, there's a valley of all these dry bones, and those dry bones represent the exiled Judahites. And they slowly come back to life, little by little, and God then breathes life into them, uh, Adam's story, breathes life into them. And, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, Ezekiel, for heaven's sake, tells you exactly what it means. He explains the metaphor at the end of that chapter. He says, basically, this is about the Judahites coming back from exile to the promised land. So to come back to the land is a sort of a resurrection. And that's why, I mean, I, I just, this is such an important theme because th this is why uh, all four Gospels introduce Jesus' public ministry by citing Isaiah 40, the first few verses. Sometimes it's John the Baptist or just a narrator, but they cite this. And Isaiah 40 is like the classic big return from exile passage in the Old Testament. You know, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare is ended. She's been repaid double for her sins, but now it's time to come home. Now it's time for comfort. And Jesus' story begins with him identifying with Israel's national plight into death. And what happens at the end of the gospel stories? Well, Jesus comes back to life. Yeah. Right. It's 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 a retelling, so to speak, of this story that really goes back to Adam that all has to do with the reality of exile and what that means. Yeah. Now, the New Testament interprets it very differently. You know, it doesn't it's not about land. It's a different kind of exile and a different kind of resurrection. But but still, I mean, the, 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 the ideas are there. And, you know, I just can't think of a more central concept for understanding the structure of the entire Bible than this the stress of exile and what it means to be Jewish and like that. No other love is like your love. No other love is like your love, oh God. Such a give wisdom almost a personification so you give wisdom like a i'm a banker for for my day job and so you give wisdom like an equation of time plus diversity equals wisdom but you also give wisdom uh like a feminine trait which i've never really given much credence to what does wisdom look like when it's given that finimum fit oh my gosh i can't talk <laughs> that that attribute feminine yeah fit, yeah all of that yeah feminine, one or the other so um <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, first of all, wisdom is personified in the Old Testament as female and referred to as she. And Proverbs chapter 8 is a great place. Like, wisdom is like uh, begotten by God and is with God at creation. And, and wisdom is a feminine concept. 
the reason that happens is probably very grammatical because wisdom, the Hebrew word is um, chokhmah is a feminine noun. But wisdom is personified as, as a woman, probably for that reason. But um, yeah, and that's what, you know, wisdom is, is sort of does take on a life of its own in a couple of places in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not an abstract concept. It's something very tangible and very concrete. And I think that speaks to the, the key importance of wisdom as a concept in the Old Testament as a whole, which is sometimes overlooked by Christians, I think. You know, we think other, like law is a central concept. Well, it, it's very important, obviously. I mean, prophets are important, kings are important. But wisdom is something that really pervades the Bible as a whole, even in the stories. Like the Adam and Eve story is considered by many people to be a wisdom story. The, jo the Joseph story is a wisdom story. Other places like that. So, yeah, w wisdom is, is key, and wisdom is personified as a woman. And the closest you come to in you know, the New Testament is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is, um, is, you know, that, that has that intimacy with God that wisdom has in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 8. A good, and, huh? No, I was going to say a good answer anytime we're discussing the Bible is to say a, the best example is Jesus. So that, that almost always works. Well, and again, I mean, for the Christian Bible, there are Jews who disagree, and I respect that fully. But for the Christian Bible, that's it's, it's like, you know, the concept of wisdom doesn't predict like Jesus or anything like that. But Jesus embodies this ideal that is taken by wisdom in that's that's occupied by wisdom in the old testament and in john's gospel you know um in the beginning was the word the word you know was with god the word was god everything was created through him this word is in john's world very much connected to the idea of wisdom it's not the same thing a complete philosophy but it's this sort of intermediary kind of figure that is is like to be connected to this is to be connected with the deity, but you know what what turns the tables in um, in in John's gospel is that this logos becomes flesh, which is logos is the Greek word for word, but this word becomes flesh, which would be anathema, both to Judaism and to Greek thinking. So it's, it's taking this wonderful idea, but then flipping it on its head a little bit and saying the unexpected here is happening. You seem to easily work in books that I'm entirely not familiar with, uh, although I have a copy of them. And so like the Wisdom of Solomon and uh, Maccabees, you know, first and second Maccabees. And so what uh, I'm familiar with what they are, but I don't really know how to use them well. So what is and what are we talking about when we say Apocrypha and its relationship to the Bible? And what use should it be of? Well, I mean, my Orthodox friends, my Eastern Orthodox friends remind me that the Apocrypha was in everybody's Bible until, I don't know, sometime relatively recently. <laughs> I mean, at, well after the Reformation. So these books are not a waste of time. And you know, Apocrypha means hidden, which is probably biasing you against them like they're hidden books. Well, not very well, because you can go buy them anywhere you want. But the, the Apocrypha are a collection of books that were essentially written in Greek, but they're Jewish books. So they stem from roughly the time of the Greek conquests of, of, of Palestine, of that part of the world, 
which happened like Alexander the Great around 332 BCE, he conquered stuff. And you see a lot of Greek influence in Jewish thinking, certainly by the year 200. And so what Jews, what they did was they kept writing. They didn't like, well, the biblical period is over. We're not going to write anything anymore. They wrote a lot of stuff to talk about what it means to be Jewish in a very different kind of world, not a Semitic world of Judaism, but in a in a Greek world, right? And that changed some things for them. And, and one reason these books are so important is because we can see these Jews before the time of Jesus thinking out loud about what it means to be Jewish in their world. And also you see some concepts that are not in the Old Testament, the Christian Old Testament, the Protestant Old Testament. They're not in the Old Testament, but they are in this apocryphal literature. And the New Testament talks about some of these things rather casually, like, as we all know. Yeah. So it's actually, there's, there's this broad gulf of, of time where, again, the caricature for many Christians is that, like, well, after the exile, you know, you had some books, and then people were basically twiddling their thumbs waiting for Jesus to show up for about 500 years. Oh no, they were they were being Jewish, <laughs> you know, and 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 the New Testament is an extension of the whole Jewish development, especially coming out of Greek thought. This isn't really the conversation at hand, but I'm just curious because I feel like you must at least know and brief the answer. Why are they not allowed to be in my Bible now? Like I say, not allowed. That's a that's a bad metaphor. Um, but why why the uh, the apathy for these books because they're they're not preached on, and uh, I've only read them in current books a handful of times. Years being among them, but each time something is 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 I read something from there, it's it's like a fresh of breath air, and that's probably because I'm not familiar with any of it, and so that yeah. that that helps it. You know, it's like a you know it's the second string quarterback that the defense never prepared for. It really penetrates all of the game plan because they play entirely different than Tom Brady or, or whoever. Why is it not canon? I guess is the best word, but I know that's entirely off topic. But I'm done. Well, it is. Remember, it is canonical, or what's sometimes called canonical, but of a secondary nature, deuterocanonical, in both Roman Catholicism and in the Eastern Orthodox churches. So that's two thirds of the church basically has these as canonical. The question really is why Protestants don't. And there are a couple of probably interrelated reasons for that. One is it was never part of the Jewish canon, these books. They were respected. It isn't like Jews ignored them back then saying, well, this isn't part of the Bible, blah, blah, blah. But the reason they're not part of the Bible is because they're not old enough. These books are written in Greek, not Hebrew. And so it's a, it's of a different level. And, and, Jews recognize that, but that doesn't mean they don't find them to be, you know, I mean, Jews think different things about topics. Not every Jew is the same, but, you know, Jews who are maybe more historically inclined or whatever. They, they will look at these books and read them and research them, even if they're not, let's say, preached on, right? And for Protestants, you know, you know, the wake of the Reformation the decisions were made, and, and I'm not clear exactly how the decisions were made, but they were made that their Old Testament is going to go back to the Jewish standard and not to the Roman Catholic standard. Because you remember, 
Protestants and Roman Catholics didn't always get along that, right? <laughs> so you have this historical divide that began for us for all intents and purposes, let's say around 1500. And, and there's sort of like an anathema, like if you start looking for wisdom from these books, you know, you're, you're bordering, you're, you're, you're treading in dangerous territory, right? And, and you're really not supposed to be doing that if you're a Protestant, but I find it invaluable for filling in the pieces. Yeah. Of, of a lot of key information of the New Testament that, you know, there's so many things in the New Testament that, like, if you if you only reference the old, things just don't make a lot of sense. Like, where do these ideas come from, right? Or things that we just take for granted that are, like, that actually have a history and a development behind them. And it's it's fascinating to see how faith in this God of Israel moves and and, and changes and... I don't mind using the word evolves in some cases yeah. because is it ready for us to model for our own way of living and doing theology? Because we're still a part of that process of, you know, what does this God of old have to do with us right here and right now? That's a hard question. And the, and the biblical witness as a whole within the old Testament, throwing the apocryphal books in the new Testament, we're seeing some pretty major shifts in thinking not just Jewish versus Christian, but within Judaism. You're talking about right now? No, back then. Okay. So, the, so this 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 ancient these this ancient corpus of material is modeling for us something that I think is very vital for us, which is that it's not just about looking for the answers. It's it's seeking answers in your day and time while engaging these texts. And looking to them for wisdom, but not expecting them to sort of answer the question for you. So two things, and I want to connect them. I don't remember exactly what chapters they're in, but you you say that uh, the Bible was created for when Israel needed it. And uh, if I'm following Christ, I'm hoping that the Bible is also created for when I need it. But then you also say that the entire history of the Christian church is defined by moments of reimagining God to speak here and now. And so practically... And for you know the next decade to fifty years, let's let's focus on decade or maybe even five years. What do you just because you have you know your finger on the pulse of a youthful generation, and you also um, you know you deal with many demographics with what you do. And so, what currently do you think needs the most attention for being reimagined or reworked through or re language languageized? I don't know what the word is. Re revoiced for the for the future of our faith to not just implode uh, because everyone that I talk to I've asked the same question recently and each of them un, un very easily have been able to say yeah within a few generations the churches we know it will cease to exist at least in western cult- culture if something doesn't change and so I'll supplant change with reimagining what do you see those things as for today um yeah that is something that I do think about and the young people, at least that I engage, they're that's sort of where they are, even if they don't articulate it quite as well. But you know, I th- one one thing, for example, is to really look at what the gospel is. <laughs> that basic, but you know, is it individualized salvation so you can avoid the wrath of a retributive God? and not go to a very hot place when you die, hmm. or salvation something else. 
Like, what is the purpose for Jesus even being on earth? I think it's that fundamental, you know, and while it's to die, is it just to die? Because we have a lot of wasted space in between, you know, birth and death there. There's a lot of stuff going on. So what, what is the purpose of Jesus's life and death? And how do we appropriate those things? And how do we, how do we, how do we think about those in ways that are meaningful today that may be different from meaningful back then? See, I mean, I think salvation, if I may, very inadequately blankety answer to, to a very <laughs> complex issue, but I really don't think salvation in the New Testament is about what happens to you when you die. It's about what happens to you right now. And whether you're a part of this kingdom of God, which is a present thing, which is going to get bigger in the future, but it is a present reality because the king is here, right? So, you know, what sorts of things would um, would you want to do if you're part of this kingdom? What kind of a person would you want to be? Well, I mean, I can I can point to things in the New Testament that suggest, you know, basically uh, helping the poor. Right, not aligning yourself with power. All the many of the things that you know in my growing up evangelical, I would see the opposite. I would see power grabs and and not real concern for people, but concern for building empires. And so I think in, in in part it's a matter of revisiting some of those older ideas as a corrective for us without even having to like rethink um, uh, language, but, but you know, even, even words like salvation or justification or righteousness, these are all terms that I think have become skewed over time. And for us to re- like rethink those terms is very, very important for understanding like what is God doing in this world? I don't think it's to build little Jesus clubs where we isolate and sort of hunker down and wait for the end of time. That's, that's a very non new Testament way of thinking. So what you're talking about there is like eschatology, but yeah, I've stopped using the word sanctification or any of those. And I just started using the word theosis for two reasons. A, I like the idea of slowly contemplatively becoming, you know, a little God Christ-like and B, right. it forces people to stop what they're doing and actually have to pay attention because I used a big word that I learned three weeks ago or whatever. <laughs> um, and so uh, intentionally I've stopped using those words and I only use that one as a very blanket term because it, it, it moves the conversation at least to a point of new information can be gathered or proffered from both yeah. parties. Uh, but that's just me personally. Well, I think that's great. I mean, the, the most difficult writing I've ever done in my life is working on a children's Bible curriculum, which I did a few years ago, and I wrote like three volumes. It's called Telling God's Story, which is excellent, by the way. And the other volumes have come out since I had to stop doing that. But it's hard. It's, it was hard writing because I couldn't use those buzzwords we're used to using. You can't use sanctification, righteousness, or this or that, right? You just you have to like talk differently. Uh, to bring it back together, and I'd like to close our time with this question, partially because I am entirely biased in the answer, and I have an inherent, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to do it better than I do it, because I know I don't do as good of a job as I could. And so you give an analogy of raising children as a good way for how the Bible works as a wisdom book. And so I'm hoping that in this answer, I can both learn something about 
a better way with intention to help raise children in a way that they have a good knowledge of Christ, but also maybe helps me read Scripture in a better way? And that is like a big wisdom question, right? Because the, the, the point is that, you know, growing in faith is not about making sure you follow. It's not treating the Bible as, again, that rule book, because rule books for parenting don't work. You can't anticipate every scenario. You, you can't anticipate your child's personality beforehand. You can't treat each of your children exactly the same way. Well, these are the rules. Well, different kids respond differently, and they have different things going on inside of them. I think the life of faith and how we read the Bible is very similar to that. I, you know, Different people will pick up different things from the Bible, and it simply doesn't work well, or I think at all, as that kind of a script to follow to crank out perfect Christians. Hmm. Let's do this, do the other thing. Well, no, I just, I mean, it's, it's, the Bible just will frustrate you at every turn when you try to make the Bible into something like that, because the Gospels don't even agree, you know, and, and Proverbs is messing with your head. And the laws in the Old Testament are, you know, there are laws given by Moses, you know, from God through Moses and depending on as you're reading Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they will say different things. That's not a mystery. People have known this since the beginning, right? So, so the Bible will frustrate our wanting to have, let's say, a parenting book for raising, being raised in the faith, rather than I think God is a good parent, and we are left to figure things out, sort of like a friend of mine puts it, winging it in the Holy Spirit. And the Bible models a process like that for us. And sometimes there are anchor points where we can touch down, but they're not ready-made. They're not these 10 things that this never changes. Now, again, God's love never changes. Okay, fine, but what does that mean? <laughs> and what, what, what's the impact of that for us? And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about seeking wisdom through experience and through communing with God and trying to be in God's presence and being mindful of that presence all the time. And then going through life and thinking, what is, how is God showing up right here and right now? You won't find the answer to that by flipping in the index of the back of the Bible. So screw the concordance and know that the day that I got my first Bible is very similar to the day that I they they trusted me forty eight hours after my wife gave birth to my son to just here you go just be don't more. read the concordance and just go for it. But here's the thing though, if you use the concordance well, you're going to be really well off because you're going to see how the same word mean things in the same way at every place that it's used. Yeah, you'll you'll be alerted to the variety of it right away. The variety of scriptures. Yeah. Well, Pete, where can, well, obviously this book will be available everywhere that fine books are sold, but how do they engage with you? I know you're very active. Well, you're semi-active on Twitter. I have no idea if you're active on Facebook. Where would you direct people to be uh, to get in touch with you and to kind of engage in this text and the work that comes with it? Sure. I mean, t uh, Twitter is always good. I have, I have a Facebook slash author page. It sounds really snooty and it's meant to be, but it's, it's a place where I will post things regularly and people comment and engage back and forth there. Uh, my website, PeteEnds.com, a.k.a. the Bible for normal people.com. 
has all sorts of stuff, you know, comments there on blog posts, and you can access our podcast there. Uh, we're also, uh, Jared, uh, Bias, and I, who were, you know, we both run the Bible for normal people. Uh, we have um, a Patreon account, and if you're not familiar with that, don't worry about it, but if you are, right? But therefore, you know, as little as a dollar a month, there's extra content that we give and different levels of engagement that we have for people who are interested, including things like being part of a book study. Mm-hmm. We do that with people occasionally too. So, so th- those are the best ways to uh, to connect with me, and there are a lot of them. They they should be familiar with Patreon because I plug it every single week. Although I will say, most people rise to the occasion. Patreon, yes. the Patreon community around specifically this show, and I'm sure it's similar with yours. Those people have become the people that I text, phone call, email, like their feedback, not because they pay money, but because they're engaged it, it is the best and the, the best feedback of anyone's because oh, yeah. just to the engagement. Yeah. We do that too. I mean, we have a level at, pay, at our Patreon for what we call producers. And these are people we get on like quarterly calls with them and they have like special access to sort of give feedback about stuff. And it's really valuable. It's fantastic. Well, Pete, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. be crazy if in 20 years our kids my kids your kids maybe you i don't know how old you are listening to this actually did what we need to do with the bible if we treated it not as an instruction book and we tried to just live quote unquote biblically if we actually wrestled with the text and allowed the text of scripture to change us if we allowed the voice of wisdom to help inform our decisions and to help change our hearts. I can't imagine what the world would look like, but I think it would look better than it does today. Actually, I know that it would look better than it does today. And so let's keep in mind, let's meditate on, and let's be clear that the Bible has many opposing views on many different issues. And at all times, both those views are true, and that's okay. Because if anything, I've learned that the Bible gives me permission to doubt. And the Bible gives me permission to question. And it's through prayer and discernment that the answers actually come. And it's worth all of the uncomfortableness and all of the effort to get to the resolutions of of the issues that come up day to day for me. The music today is from a repeat artist, Matt Tipton. Uh, I used some of his music in a previous episode, and it was beautiful. He has a new album called Blessed King that you can get everywhere music is sold it's everywhere just google blessed king matt tipton beautiful music but check out matt and then as always the songs from today's episode all four of those will be mixed into the spotify playlist for the music of this show that playlist is called can i say this at church it is fantastic playlist you should be listening to it i will talk with you next week and i'm excited to be blessed everybody
Over